Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. This episode is interesting because this is an outtake from a written interview. Adam Gray, who does a fabulous job on the basketball card fanatic. It was a virtual magazine, and he will produce it in print if you want to subscribe that way. And I'd forgotten. I've been getting the episodes digitally and reading them on my big screen. I don't read things too well on my iPhone and iPad because the print's too small. I've got a big monitor so I can read it there. But he sent me a physical copy, and I just delighted in reading the interview. This was him interviewing me. I think he did a great job because he made me sound good. I don't think I sound terrible, but he asked me some great questions. He's so passionate and knowledgeable. It was really a joy. So keep up the good work, Adam, and hope you're enjoying your work at PWCC now from being in the other world with the others when you're not working in the hobby. So working in a hobby, I hope that's working out great for you. Thanks, sponsors. Tops Panini, Upper Deck, here. Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Compsy.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So we teed it up quite a while ago. His magazine has already come out, and, and I thought there's some things in there. He was asking for 10 or 15 minutes, and we obviously went longer, but he did a great job of editing it down. So these probably are outtakes in a sense. It was him asking me questions for close to an hour, and he distilled it very well. This is not necessarily more than what was in the magazine. I really encourage you to subscribe to Basketball Card Fanatic digitally, even though I really got a kick out of seeing it in print. It just was a throwback to the 20th century where I was enjoying doing print publication. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, listeners. This especially goes into more depth about the very beginnings of the Basketball Magazine. He was jogging my memory by his pointed questions, and I appreciated that. So here it is, and be sure to check out Basketball Card fanatic. There actually ought to be a baseball card fanatic and a football card fanatic, but I don't think that's going to be Adam's assignment, and it's not my assignment either. But going deep in the single sports, I think, is really cool. And we talked about that. So here it is. You had an opportunity in the early 90s doing Beckett Baseball, and it was really succeeding. And there were people internal to your company who felt like as the other sports grew, you should include those other sports in the same magazine. But you made the decision to give each sport its own magazine. Basically, I was working a lot of hours and our baseball magazine was hugely successful even at that point. And everything worked toward that first Monday of the month that we had to have all our pricing stuff done. We had a much smaller team then and I was extremely actively involved in the day-to-day stuff. I was doing something I loved, but it was pulling all-nighters. And my team, everybody said, you shouldn't start a new magazine. That's going to be so much more work. And I said, no, it's actually going to wind up being less work. It's going to be distributed throughout the month. I had a peak load problem. So to schedule football two weeks after the baseball, and then obviously later basketball got slotted in between and hockey came after that. But my vision that people didn't see, I don't know anybody other than me that said, Every sport needs its own thing. There was less overlap than what people thought. I knew that because I'd been a serious collector and I went to all the shows. But secondly, each sport was going to blossom differently. You're not a football card fanatic. You're a basketball card fanatic. Okay. I'm realizing that basketball was part of the decision for football to be a standalone magazine. Because as soon as that decision was made, that meant basketball was going to have its own magazine shortly thereafter, as soon as we got over digesting the growth, and then hockey was going to come right after that. 
So basketball deserves credit because it was really starting to take off. Again, it really made a lot of sense for basketball to be on its own, even though, again, the naysayers said there aren't that many basketball cards. Yeah, people are interested in it right now, and there's the Fleer and the Star Company and Tops. The price got to be so skimpy. I said, don't worry, it'll eventually catch up, which it really did. Then the other part of it that I haven't belabored is that hockey, being my least, I was really up on basketball. I was really up on football. I was really up on baseball. Hockey, not as much, even though I went to the Toronto shows twice a year for a lot of those years. I knew I needed to bring in teammates that were going to pass me up. That was the grand vision at that point, that I was going to have four magazines. There were four Mondays in a typical month, actually five Mondays, four times a year. (laughs) And so those were going to be five Mondays. I got a week off without deadlines. (laughs) And so all that was wrapped into having each of the magazines Starting with football, because football had a longer track record and more robust cards out there. But basketball, close behind, we did great with basketball. In fact, basketball, we wouldn't have had the success in Australia we had in the 90s without basketball opened up baseball, football, everything else in in Australia. We had a huge circulation in Australia. It's a large country, but a relatively small population, kind of like Canada. But basketball was huge in Australia, and hockey was huge in in Canada. I never regretted that, even though people said, you're going to kill yourself because you don't have more capacity. And I said, actually, by spreading it out through the month, it's going to force me to delegate. I will have to hire because it will be clear that I can't do it all. And I was always slow to hire people. But as we got busier and busier, I realized we need more people. By having these different magazines that allowed us to have creative directors, artistic design directors that now had a whole bunch more page output during the month. By having more magazines, we had a better printing contract because we were showing up at the printer every Monday morning. At what point did you know that you made the right decision? Before I made it, Adam. I think a lot of us have been in situations before where we've had to go against what our team thinks, or we've gone against what maybe the majority of people think because we feel so strongly. And it's easy to doubt yourself in those moments. But you're saying, I never doubted. I really felt so strongly that this was right. And so we went for it. Is that right? Yeah, I think I bet my life. I said, this is going to be better quality of life. Financially, it turned out great too. But I think the conventional wisdom is you have a bigger, thicker magazine. It's just going to be a colossal thing. To me, that sounded like doing a book every month instead of doing yeah. a magazine. They said, you're going to have so much advertising clout. I thought, we're not ad-driven. We're hobby. We want the hobby shops to be excited about receiving this publication on Tuesday mornings. We want collectors to be excited about going down to get it or going to their mailbox. In fact, there was like an absence of debate. They thought, well, you're just convinced, but you're wrong. And I said, you can think that, but here's where we're going. It's a great story because of how influential the decisions were. It's impossible to play back how it influenced everybody. But me, I either had a subscription to Beckett Basketball monthly or during the times where we didn't have enough money as a family for me to even afford that 30 billion bucks a year. In those cases, we still went to the card shop once a week so that we could see what the stories were. We cared so deeply about who was on the cover that month, the arrows in the price guide. meant that basketball collectors were not second-class citizens in the hobby. It allowed us to have a real-life experiment to see how many copies each of the sports sold in a kind of a fair fight. The hobby shops, how many baseball do you want? We want 50 a month. How many basketball do you want? We want 30. How many football? We want 30. How many hockey? We want 20. 
and that would ebb and flow. They we sold out of basketball again because you had Michael Jordan on the cover. We may not want to increase it. It was just because of Michael, because somebody else may be on the cover the next month. The first issue, the second, the third. Do you remember what the quantities of basketball issues were sold during those months? More than 100,000. Okay. By football coming in and being successful as a second magazine behind baseball, then people were chomping at the bit with Michael Jordan on the cover. We hit the ground running. By then, our team was assembled. We had great talent, and we were respected as the pricing authority of the industry. The very first page of the magazine is an ad for the 1989 Hoops cards. Do you remember if your company was paid by Hoops to do this? I will say this. They did pay it. We didn't do free ads. Dealers appreciated it. We were very selective in the ads we would take. That is an ad, as you would notice, that is really not going to in any way take away from a local card shop. In fact, it's going to push people toward the local card shop to get that brand new product that hopefully was exciting at the time. Yeah, if we'd had an ad for some other mail order dealer that was trying to get get business away from the card shops, we did not accept that money. We didn't accept ads like that. What did the process of putting together the hot and cold lists look like? First of all, there's two parts to that question. One is when I did it, and then it was one of the first things I delegated. Because when I was doing it, again, all the price guide stuff, I'm a numbers guy. So all the stuff I did, I'm a sampling, statistics, surveying kind of guy. And as much as possible, everything I did was empirical, trying to get real data. It just became where the hot list, it was just impossible. We had surveys where people would send in their hots and their colds. But at some point, and this is at the point where I delegate, I said, there's some editorial selection going on. I don't want to have a monopoly on that. We had an editorial staff. So it wasn't just one person. The key members of our price guide team and editorial team had their own methodology. And then it was worked out because it became not a price guide thing, Adam. It became an editorial product that was then written about. I've never said this before. It was not as timely as the price guide. Because the price guide mm-hmm. just stood on its own. We were going to do that the very last minute we were changing prices before we went to the printer. The hot list and stuff like that, that had to be developed. You have the list, then you had to talk about it, and then you had to get all the pictures and everything. That was assembled toward the end of the month. It wasn't at the beginning of the month, but you had last month to look at. It became a matter of opinion and a matter of controversy. I would have wanted something that everybody would agree with. And you know from your Iconic 100, that's impossible. There's no way you could do an Iconic 100 and everybody say, Adam, you nailed it. That's perfect. No disagreements. That's what I was shooting for in the price guide because we had empirical results to point to and say, you think that's wrong, but you don't know about this sale that we're reporting over here. If you were in our shoes, you'd come up with the same thing. Hot list, not so hot list and the iconic 100, I think, have some similarities. But even if you provide it to everybody, the full methodology of what you do, what we learned with the iconic 100 is you still have people push back and say, because it's because what question you ask, but who you ask it to. That's right. One question that I hadn't thought of, but I considered just right now, you always have the gray pages and then the full color pages as part of the magazine. Is it just as simple as cost, the determining factor on that? Cost was not the determining factor. They were printed on two different presses, two different paper, two different presses. Newsprint was cheaper paper and it was a different press, but it was only black ink. The others were color. They required color separations and these other forms, a more expensive press, a press that took more time to set up because of the color registrations and all that. So the color pages were done on the nicer paper earlier. And that was the kind of the outside of the Oreo cookie or the sandwich. That was the bread. The guts of the magazine were the newsprint pages were because of newsprint. Think newspaper. Newspapers are dailies. Magazines are weeklies and monthlies. And so the turnaround time for black and white 
newsprint is not instantaneously, but it's way shorter to produce. And so it's done on a different press. It was cheaper, but it was also way more timely. We saved a couple of days. And so all we had to do is say, these pages are going to be price guide. And then the editorial and team knew to wrap around the beautiful articles, nicely illustrated with all the color. And that took a few extra days. The closing for that was way earlier. And same Mm -hmm. thing with the covers. The covers were done in a different printing process as well. And so they had deadlines. So I always insisted that the price guide deadlines were the absolute last. And being on newsprint with only black ink, it doesn't take very long for the ink to dry when it's like that. For whatever reason, we had printers that we contracted with. We had multiple printers over the years, but we had R.R. Donnelly, which was the largest printer in the world. And we had Quebec War, which was the second largest. We had these huge world-class printers that either had operations in Dallas in many cases. And in some years, we, they, we actually got contracts to print other places. They had so many printing presses, but printing presses need to be scheduled and you're on and off. And then it's assembled with the binding. We iterated in the beginning, it was one printer that was downtown, not a huge printer, but a great guys. And it was all the same paper. It was just 32 pages, that first one. It didn't look as good, but that wasn't a bad thing, that it looked inferior because, again, we could explain it was more timely. Our price guide would have had been cut off three days earlier. And three days is not like it is now. Three days is like three months. (laughs) Now You've got the two sides of the Oreo cookie that you planned for the whole thing. And then the prices are the last pieces that you drop. Did you ever have anything between when you finished planning and the color parts on either side were completed where you realized, oh, shoot, we should have had something else included on those gray pages that you then didn't have room for? Did that ever happen? No, because even in the early days, I had this markup language where I knew how many lines it was going to be. So it was fit. We never messed up. I'm a math guy. You had 32 pages or whatever you had, and you're going to fill it up and you know how many lines that is. And And so we didn't have to pad it usually. We knew what we were going for. We knew early in the month when you're planning the magazine, you know what new sets are coming out. And if they're going to be included, they're going to be included. And we know how many lines we have to add for that. Probably halfway through the month, we're deciding. Then we'd know how many articles we'd need and how many pages they would be. If an ad came in, we'd bump an article to the next month. So we had some flexibility, but the price guide was always locked in. If that was going to be 32 pages or 48 pages or whatever it was.